This is Company. I'm Sky Manson. Company is a podcast produced in rural Australia, bringing together ambitious women from the bush, the cities, and all over the world. And the women of the CWA of New South Wales are just the kind of girls I'm talking about. In the association's 100-year-long history, its women have become known as the reliable, just-get-stuff-done kind of people, and this rings true to this day. In part two of my conversation with Liz Harfel, the author commissioned to write Women Who Changed Country Australia for the CWA of New South Wales's 100th birthday, Liz introduces us to some of the trailblazers of the New South Wales CWA, the women who she wishes she'd been able to share a scone and a cup of tea with. She also lets slip that she often stays up writing until 2am in the morning. More on that later. But we resume this chat by learning about annual conferences and the CWA's preference to hold them in regional towns. I mean, the CWA annual conferences now are held mostly in country towns. um, They're a great way for the CWA to be out and in touch with what's going on in regional areas and also to bring some economic returns to country towns that host these massive conferences. But the very first one outside Sydney was in Maureen in 1924. And just think about that for a minute and what the state of the roads and transport was like in 1924 and how hard it was for these women to actually get to Moree. I found a great story of a woman who actually uh, ended up in hospital because the car she was traveling in hit a rut that was so deep that her face bounced into the roof of the car and she broke her nose. (laughs) But it's kind of, you know, it's a story that kind of tells you, there were some roads, but they weren't brilliant. And also we were talking about very early motor vehicles and the train services, which was another issue that right from the beginning, the, the CWA campaigned for. In fact, the other delegation that they had in their first 24 hours was for the Minister for Railways. The trains were not comfortable. You know, they quite often women had to sit up in carriages with no form of heating or cooling, nursing their children. Mm-hmm. Then they'd get to a station where the train would stop so people could buy refreshments and they'd have to do battle at the counter with all the other passengers while juggling a baby and toddlers to, uh, and in the short time that they had, but to then get back on the train and, you know, they'd travel overnight sitting up. So, yeah, transport's been, was a huge issue. So getting them, everyone to, to Moree for the first conference <laughs> would have been a challenge. Huge feat. Who was Ada Beveridge? Uh-huh. Ada is Ada is one of those people who I decided after learning about it that I'd love to have sat down at a, over a cup of tea and a scone with Ada. She was essentially the CWA's Winston Churchill. <laughs> and I say that because she was president when the Second World War broke out and she had been 
actually advocating for some months before the war started that women should be prepared, that they should do first aid courses and, uh, you know, develop their skills because she was concerned that war was coming. And she was, by all accounts, an incredible public speaker. Her speeches were reported by local papers and the Sydney press as being some of the best speeches that they'd heard give by public figures, including the blokes. Mm. Um, After the war had been going for a little while and the federal authorities had failed to turn to women and, and see them as a valuable resource, a group of women took it upon themselves to meet and get started rather than wait to be asked. Ida was given the job of heading up the land army in New South Wales, the early land army. Um, She was put in charge of that. So the very first young women trained in that were trained on her property, um, Billabong, where they went for a special camp. But to get things started, they had a meeting at the town hall and invited women to attend. 10,000 women showed up, packed every level of the Sydney town hall and spilled out onto the street. And Ida gave this incredibly powerful speech, which um, the newspapers reported on, motivating and encouraging these women to do their bit and um, for the war effort. Is that speech publicly available? Not the whole speech. There were just excerpts of it that were published, um, both in the papers and, and by that stage, the CWA had its own journal, which came out every month. So they reported some of it too. Mm-hmm. But I, I often wish that there was a recording somewhere of of Ida delivering one of her speeches because mm. it sounds like she was quite something. In those days, were they the heydays of the CWA, That the point in time where they had the most members? And, and what did those numbers look like? The Second World War is when the CWA really entrenched its reputation for being reliable in a crisis and getting things done. Their war effort was extraordinary. Um, you know, they, they produced tens of thousands of camouflage nets for the military. They reconditioned over 100,000 uniforms um, for people serving in the military. Then they did all their comforts work with individual members, you know, knitting things for the troops and baking cakes. I found this amazing photograph of a front veranda stacked with this huge pyramid of tins full of fruit cake, mm-hmm. <laughs> which they sent uh, over to Britain during the war. Um, so, and they they ran, they set up a service women's club in Sydney when they discovered there was nowhere for women who were on leave and in the women's services to go. There were plenty of canteens and clubs for the men. They set one up in Darlinghurst, um, and they created a cafeteria, which is where they sharpened their catering skills that you know are quite famous today because they cooked hundreds of meals five meals a day I think it was um, not just for the women staying at in this club but um, for other women you know working in Sydney who needed a good hot meal mm. and um, and they ran a barge at the wharves you know they, they wanted to provide catering down at the wharves because there are a lot of women who went go down there as drivers for military um, personnel and there was nowhere they could get a cup of tea and there was no space so the military authorities offered them this old barge which they transformed into a cafeteria so, <laughs> so you know that they, they really 
proved their mettle. Any task they were given, they delivered on time and in spades um, and just proved to be incredibly capable. And coming out of the war, they started turning their minds to what was needed for to rebuild the country and to help Australia move forward. And their focus um, became things like education, more baby clinics because the population was growing, working with migrants. They set up a branch in the Shavel migrant camp. Um, <laughs> um, so, and that's when they hit their peak. So in, in, in about the 50s, they had uh, around 30,000 members just in New South Wales. Um, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of women who were marrying, like my mum, marrying and moving to country districts and mm. needing to find their way and a growing population. That's, that's really when they hit the straps. What other women of the CWA would you have loved to be able to sit down with and have a tea and a scone? Um, the other figure is a woman called Dorothy Ross. And Dorothy was the state, a state president in the 70s. Um, she was a farmer in her own right, single, the first single woman elected <laughs> president of the CWA um, from Holbrook, where her family had been farmers um, for many years. And Dorothy really put the CWA on the map nationally in terms of advocacy. The CWA in Australia tends to operate, they, they operate a different in each state separately. But in the 1940s, they created a national umbrella association so that they were better able to lobby politicians. And, you know, it, it didn't really make its mark until I would say the 1980s when Dorothy was the first woman to be elected national president. Um, up until that point, the states had just taken turns you know, whoever was state president and it was that state's turn, they became national president. But Dorothy was elected to the president's role at the time when Bob Hawke had become prime minister and there were huge issues facing rural communities. Commodity prices were terrible. This is all going to sound so familiar to your listeners. Few prices were going through the roof. Um, you know, issues with markets and subsidies and uh, tariffs and a Labor government, which obviously the farming community felt was not really supportive of, of agriculture and rural communities. And, and Dorothy was one of a handful of speakers who were asked to talk to what was the biggest farm rally probably ever held in Australia. And it's considered to be one of the largest rallies ever held in Canberra, mm. which um, took to the streets in 1985 when, and the estimate is something like 45 to 50,000 farmers showed their displeasure with where things were headed and protested against government policies. And so Dorothy stood on the back of a semi-trailer and spoke to that group. She was a very persuasive speaker again, apparently. You know, she could turn a conference around <laughs> to her viewpoint quite strongly. And she was the one who also was given the challenge of reviving the CWA and what was a pretty dark time for them because women's lib and... Uh, you know, the changing social scene of the 60s and 70s had really sidelined the CWA. And, you know, there were a lot of people who felt they would lost their relevance. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the number the membership was dropping off quite rapidly and Dorothy revived them she challenged them to think about what it was that women needed at that time and to make sure that the CWA was relevant and she took them that had most of their conferences for years um for more than 30 years had been held in Sydney she took them back out into the country the first conference for decades was held in Broken Hill and that revived that tradition of getting them back out into into country communities and uh, she was part of organizing the first major survey ever undertaken of rural women um, thousands of women were surveyed to find out what the issues of concern were for them um, in their daily lives and in their family lives which was a huge breakthrough it pretty much reinforced what the CWA had been focusing on for years and but gave them fresh impetus to argue for those things mm, and did it re-engage it re-engaged for sure mm. um, I mean it was a you know it was a struggle over the coming years to to sort of to sign up new members and keep the CWA branches active but Dorothy certainly turned around the trend in her period as state president the numbers started increasing again and tell me Liz about uh, Ruth Fairfax yeah Ruth Fairfax was another character who I think I would have loved to have met um, for years she was the voice of the CWA because she edited their journal uh, you know the Fairfax name is very well known in in uh, media and publishing circles mm. she married into the Fairfax family she was living on a station in outback Queensland when the CWA movement took off and uh, about four months after the conference in Sydney Brisbane held a similar conference inspired by what they'd seen happen down south and they formed their own CWA and Ruth was elected the first president so she was the founding president in Queensland um, and then unfortunately family business meant that her husband had to come back to work in the family empire in Sydney so they had to leave station life and they moved to Sydney and so Ruth transferred her membership to the New South Wales CWA and she played a lot of important roles over the years but one of the main things that she did was take the CWA to a whole new international level and I'm not sure many people realize just how much work uh, the CWA does on an international front so in 1929 there was this gathering in London which was the very first gathering of women from rural women's organizations around the world and Ruth was there and she was elected a vice president and given and she made some quite powerful speeches during that first gathering that uh, won the respect of women leaders from around the world and she came back to Australia and took it upon herself to really encourage women to engage with public affairs at an international level and to think about the plight of their sisters in other countries and for them to work collectively to make a difference and that the associated country women of the world is an incredibly powerful organization these days with millions of members in dozens of countries and uh, not just in uh, countries we might think of as major agricultural farming countries but developing worlds as well mm. where mm. where rural women are the breadwinners and uh, in very small sustainable farms for for their families and communities um, and Ruth you know was 
part of the pioneering effort to make that happen. She also wrote quite powerful editorials, you know, through the quite a few years that she was editor of the journal and including the war years, just encouraging women and um, and recognising the challenges they were facing and urging them to keep the faith. She was a very, she had very strong, a very strong personal faith, which was quite important to her. So in many ways, her thoughts and ideas and her encouragement kind of set the tone for the whole organisation. Did you say the first CWA branch was in Crookwell in Australia yes. or in New South Wales? The first CWA branch ever, you know, so in Australia, yeah, was in, was in Crookwell. And so was that set up before 1922? No, that was set up um, a couple of months after that, well, a few weeks. So sort of mm. May 10th was the date that the meeting was held in Crookwell to, to form the CWA branch. So um, it followed. Lived or... Yes, that's right. By then she'd moved to a property um, just out of Crookwell. And so she, um, she stayed in Sydney to be part of the delegation with Grace and to work alongside Grace. They had a series of meetings that went over several days to really get knuckle down and work out what the CWAs looked like. They wrote the first constitution and objectives and, um, you know, made a decision about early fundraising and what they were going to do to uh, build the organisation and establish branches. And then after they, you know, sort of had those meetings to really make a good start, um, the women went home and Florence organised this meeting in Crookwall and they um, managed to form the first branch um, anywhere in Australia. She actually challenged the women of the community to make sure that Crookwall was put on the map for its far-sightedness in setting up this branch and not just for the quality of its potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so back to Ruth, another question. Was her... um, her her family her her married name as Fairfax did that assist with the CUWA in a media sense in any way it's a good question um I know that uh, for example during the second world war paper was really hard to get hold of so they struggled they were struggling to produce editions of um, their cookbooks and of the journal. And um, from what I can gather reading in the archives, Ruth did use her connections to find a source of newsprint um, so that they could keep the journal in production. Um, And, you know, she is a very talented, talented writer and editor. So I don't know, you know, whether that came from, some of the people she had a chance to meet or was just her own skills. Her daughter, Nancy, took over from her as editor of the journal. Um, and then that condition, that that continued right through into quite recent times. There's been a Fairfax member, um, family member as patron of the journal. So Liz, now, knowing what you now know and having, you know, after having written this book and researched so deeply into the CWA of New South Wales. I've got a few questions for you off the back of that. In your opinion, what has been the part that it's played in this in the social history of rural areas here? There is hardly an aspect of social life and issues in rural Australia that they have not been involved in. And that is one of them was one of the most enormous challenges for me as an author 
when I looked at the resolutions debated at branch meetings and at conferences and the issues that they've spoken up on, um, the, the breadth and depth of them is extraordinary. And, you know, everything from uh, championing rural produce you know, the reason they're famous for handicrafts is because in the late 1920s, they set out to save the Australian wool industry. <laughs> it, was, it was not just because they liked to knit, you know, they had a purpose for that. So, and they had a campaign in the 30s led by a member from Leeton that saved the canning fruit industry. Um, so, so from that aspect, right through to championing issues relating to education, services for the disadvantaged, um, gun laws, um, medical research, um, road safety. It, it is, it's almost impossible to think of an aspect of life that they haven't engaged in at some point in the history uh, and of course in more recent years they've become quite well known for lobbying against the impact of mining um, on agricultural land and water resources um, they've taken to the streets again to protest about that um, and uh, so I mean it, it was just uh, the more I read and just looking through the lists of resolutions um, it's quite extraordinary hmm. They're a very powerful advocacy group um, in New South Wales. I wouldn't say that's true of the CWA in every state, but certainly in New South Wales, they are a very powerful advocacy group. The thing I love most about the stories of the CWA are those stories of country women welcoming city women into the community in sort of inimitable ways that only country yeah. women can do. What's your reflection on on that side of things? How do you describe that? Oh my goodness! Well, do you know, I uh, I was able to make a few trips to New South Wales um, and get out and about and attend events. I, I went to the the show, for example, and uh, their where their cafe their cafe serves you know fifty thousand plus scones <laughs> um, to people. Um, and is a great way for them to engage with the public, but also for members to come together and work. So I went there and I, di I did a few little road trips to different um, areas. And when I asked women why they joined the CWA, the overwhelming response was for the companionship, for being able to meet with other women and have that sense of connection personal connection and with their community and to do it in the context of an organization where they could also make a difference so it not only gave them that personal support but in coming together and sharing those interests they could harness their skills and their time mm. and I know that the CWA has always been concerned about wanting to engage younger women as members and they are doing a fine job and a lot of young women are joining but there's a whole group of women who later in life find themselves single for the first time and alone whether it's you know because their marriage is broken down or their children have left home or they've retired from work and they are looking for a fresh 
sense of purpose and a way of connecting. And the CWA is a very powerful way of doing that. And during the pandemic, um, I have to say, I, I, one of the visits I made was to Yetman, really close to the Queensland border for a group conference, um, which happened uh, towards the end of the first year of lockdowns. And there were women in the room who were crying as they talked about what the CWA had meant to them in getting through that period. Then they talked about the care that the members took for each other and phone calls to check in that they were okay and helping them with when they were, were not and just calling on their resources. And I remember visiting the head office of Sydney and there's a room where people's donations are put um, and they're looked after by one of the committees called, uh, called the Hospital Support Committee, which has been doing fine work. It's the oldest committee of the organisation. Um, and, and it was packed to the ceiling and spilling out into the passageways with things that members and the public had been making in COVID lockdown mm -hmm. and sending to the CWA to give to people in need. Um, you know, there was just so much of it. Okay. <laughs> Very that they were, you know, struggling to keep up with the response. Mm. Yeah. For 100 years, the Country Women's Association of New South Wales has been bettering the services, facilities and communities of this state. There are many exciting events and activities planned for the organisation's 100th birthday this year the biggest of which will be the annual state conference for members at Royal Randwick in Sydney on the 2nd to the 5th of May. As well is the release of Liz Harfel's book, Women Who Changed Country Australia, which will happen at a date later in the year that's yet to be confirmed. Find out more information about the annual conference and when Liz's book will be released by following the CWA of New South Wales's Facebook page. Another much-loved resource is the CWA Journal, which is sent to all current members. To become a member, like I have, fill out the application online at cwaofnewsouthwales.org.au. Do you think, do you see that the CWA is just a historical organisation? No, I don't. I don't think they're going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, there, there are no doubt individual branches who are struggling, um, but there are new branches being formed. Uh, even during the pandemic, a new branch was formed. Um, uh, you know, there have been new members uh, joining up at a faster rate, I think, than there have been members either leaving or... And they're doing good work. And in certainly they are recognised um, as a powerful force to connect with. If, if you're in politics and you want to know what's going on in the rural area, you know, they're one of the first organisations any politician in New South Wales picks up the phone to. That's my impression, sitting and watching what's going on. Um, because they know, you know, they've got this amazing network. And just look at what's happened, you know, in the recent drought years, they were given, you know, the federal government gave CWAs around the country millions and millions of dollars to distribute because they knew they were a safe pair of hands with good networks who would get the money to the people who needed it most. 
and that's you know in in recent years so i don't see the meme that came out about the cwa um um, yes if they've been put in charge of um, vaccinations and running the the COVID test kits i think yeah we'd be we'd be better off yes well i mean this again it goes back to you know they've been doing that since since the second world war they've been proving their worth in a crisis so yes i did see the meme and it kind of it ring it resonated with a lot of people because it you know it's true these are very capable practical women who get things done and the Um, pathways are established and they know their communities like you know i one of the women i met um during the drought she was well aware that sometimes um country people struggle with asking for help they're reluctant to do that um and she was aware of some of those people in her community so she personally would uh take boxes of necessities and just drive down their driveway and leave it on the back veranda <laughs> She knew, she knew the families that needed help mm-hmm. and she also knew that they wouldn't want a fuss made and they might not ask. So she found another way of getting help to them. And that, that comes from knowing your community and being part of it. Um, and, and, you know, from the beginning, all of the founders, even though the Grace Munro and Florence Gordon did not see eye to eye, they really didn't like each other, they agreed on the importance of it being a grassroots organisation. And that, you know, it was about about the set, establishing a lot of small branches and as many of them as they could, so as many women as possible could benefit. And that's still true. So, Liz, um, when can we get your book? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to be a little bit patient. Um, so, you've, so the official release isn't until early July. Um, and that's when it will hit the bookstores. Um, CWA branches might get some early copies. Um, I think, uh, it, you know, there are plans to sort of make make some available uh, within the CWA network before that, but um, the official release is in July. And before I let you go, I do, I would love to ask you a few quick fire questions about your days and how you structure your days as a writer because when I was chatting to you on the phone to line up this interview you said I'm a real night owl sometimes I'm awake until 2 a.m in the morning which just fascinates me um so obviously you're not a morning person but you're an evening person would that be right to say yes that's true I'm I start slowly uh for the day always with a strong cup of coffee Um, and these days doing the word or puzzle and um, uh, yes and then um, I will because I've got the luxury of working from home and I work in in this beautiful in studio building that looks out onto my garden which I love even though it's looking a bit tired after we haven't had any rain at all much to speak of where I live Um, and I'm not going to complain about that having you know seen the devastation in other parts of the country but I sit here and look out of my garden Um, so I will probably not start until you know late morning and I'll have I'll have lunch at about 2 30 3 (laughs) o'clock and uh, then do some more work Um, go for a walk do stay out in the garden in the summer I work in the garden in the evenings when it's cooler and then um, after you know and then I'll quite often um, if I'm writing I will come back and write um, or if I'm doing background research I'll sit and read um, but I'm rarely in bed before two in the morning 
Really? So it's like that's an everyday for you? Pretty much, yeah. Unless, Unless traveling and research and forces me to, you know, have a different pattern, I can adapt. But my natural sort of rhythm <laughs> works better that way why are the nights better for you I have no idea but they just they just are I, I um I seem to work better to write better in those hours it's when I'll I'll have a flash of inspiration too I I, I try to have a pen and paper next to the bed mm. Because I will quite often wake up in the night with a problem solved about how to start that story or, you know, the sentence that wasn't working or or whatever. Um, and I'll write it down so, I, you know, it's there in the morning. How do you wind down at 2am? Do you just head hits the pillow and you're out? Or are you quite wired after having work, worked for that long? I can't go to sleep without reading. Uh, you know, I've always got maybe... 10 books stacked beside my bed and depending on what mood I'm in will vary which one I pick up Um, and to me a day starts and ends with reading (laughs) books are my greatest weakness I have a whole wall of my studio full of books and I have a whole wall of my lounge room to ceiling full of books Um, so um, and I you know I probably borrow half a dozen books from the library every couple of weeks so what's on what's what's in the pile right now (laughs) off the top of your head oh okay so I'm about to start a book that's I think the title is the librarians of Timbuktu uh, which is uh, you know we use the word Timbuktu as sort of slang reference throughout the back of nowhere the real Timbuktu is in the middle of the desert in Africa and, Mm. and had an extraordinary library one of the world's best libraries um, many centuries ago and uh, so I, lo- I love non-fiction um, and uh, so I read a fair fair amount of that um, but I've I also love um, if I'm unwinding and trying to kind of just lull myself into sleep I love uh, Georgian romances um, I, I, st- I read Georgette Heyer I had a librarian give me a copy of Georgette Heyer when I was about 10 or 11 that got me hooked on that sort of genre and I love crime books um, so um, I've been reading uh, Kerry Greenwood's Franny Fisher books since they first came out which is many years ago now um, so yeah so and and poetry a little bit of that um so yeah it will depend it will depend on you know what I'm feeling like in the mood and what relaxes you um cooking and reading relaxes me I am a very bad pianist I I have uh, which I have to convince people about because uh, Mm -hmm. my first the first thing I bought when I started my cadetship at the age of 17 was not a car it was a grand piano (laughs) (laughs) I come from a family of self-taught musicians um, and uh, well my my uncle uh, studied music so he actually got serious about it but the rest of the family have pretty much just you know played music because they love it Um, and for some reason I, I set my heart on having a grand piano and my my parents had a huge lounge room fortunately that could accommodate one (laughs) 
<laughs> so um, it gives people false hope about my standard of playing <laughs> when they see it. But but when I'm really stressed, I will sit down at the keyboard. Well, Liz, it has been so fascinating chatting with you and learning a little bit about your life and also about the great women of the CWA of New South Wales. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to share it all with us. It's been my pleasure, Scott. So many good Australian trivia questions right there, don't you think? This interview really made me think about the random acts of kindness that we do as women, not just country women, but I think country women are especially good at it. The things like dropping a curry around for a friend who's battling through a rough time or just a bad week or leaving a yummy cake on the back doormat. And I wondered, are these values instilled in us as a result of the generations of random acts of kindness carried out by CWA members over the years? Or is it just that most of us are like that and the CWA is very good at celebrating these nuanced ways of care and nurturing that come from rural communities? I wonder what you think. A question I did wish that I had asked Liz, which I didn't, was why did the CWA initially go down the path of printing its own cookbooks? There is just so many questions that I could have asked her. And I think you'll agree that these publications are such a treasured historical resource in our society now. There's not many bookshelves that haven't seen one. I'm going to be having a little bit of fun with some of the facts and stories from today's interview on Instagram at some point over the next week. You can find me at sky underscore Manson if you don't already follow me. And the CWA of New South Wales has a new Instagram account to celebrate its 100th birthday. Search celebrating 100 years CWA of NSW on Instagram to see more about its centenary postcard project. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back with you next week.